Welcome back, everybody. Episode 12, Great American Dynasty podcast, and uh, postseason starting. Little, not a little, a lot disappointed. You know, we're, you were on the outside looking in for that last about good month, month and a half, um, with going in and out of holding a wild card spot, but ultimately got, honestly, there's no other way to put it, just got outplayed down the stretch. Um, one of the easiest schedules, if not the easiest, playing multiple series against teams with losing records that just haven't looked good all year and, you know, shit down her leg. And, you know, we're outside looking in. And now you've got our division rival in, in that second wild card spot, which is really tough to see. Yeah, you start – the uh, the season off just absolutely electric uh, with that seven and two uh, start and you know that uh th- that what I feel like was a key spark that really got this team going especially after that opening day loss um, with uh, Castiano scoring on that wild pitch and then you know. We go 11 and 17 in the final 28 games, and the Cardinals just go on an absolute tear with 17 consecutive wins. I mean, they entered September two and a half out of the wild card, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, we we were pretty much, you know, we controlled our own destiny. Uh, we, we've said it all along. We controlled our own destiny at the beginning of this month, and we just collapsed. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And um, as of our last podcast, we had put ourselves into a situation where we couldn't lose. And we ended up losing the first game of the series to a pretty good White Sox team. So, you know, that easy schedule uh, ended up being not so easy after all. You know, five and ten in games against really teams that are non-competitive. You had Detroit, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Washington all down the stretch over this past month. And, you know, you you didn't capitalize on those opportunities. But, um, you know, it really it's it's hard to blame it on the players when it was the front office that just really it it felt like just gave up on this team. They hung him out to dry. Um, You know, they, they didn't, you acquired those relievers at the, uh, the deadline and that's nice and all, but there was just so much more to kind of that was needed. And for a, for a team that was this talented for a lineup um, of got of three MVP caliber guys um, really that were in that lineup every single day. You had the NL rookie of the year, you know, arguably top three NL, NL rookie of the year candidate as well. And, you know, it's, it's just all wasted. And now you find yourself, uh, you know, watching from the other side of the fence. So it, it hurts. 
there's no other way to put it, but it's heartbreaking. Yeah, tough to see, especially because, you know, we've mentioned, you brought it up, you, you really, you had a chance to really just like grab it by the horns and go at it. And when you put yourself in that position at the end of the year with five games left to where you cannot lose a game, you cannot lose one single game against Washington and the White Sox. The White Sox are a very, very good baseball team. Um, Say what you want about them, but, and say what you want about that division, but that's a very, very well-rounded team. And to go against two games where you basically have to be perfect, um, it's, it's really, it really sucks. Um, And then, you know, there was that Pittsburgh, that last series where just out of it. And I think what's uh, really telling and what was awesome to see from at least my point was we were 100% out of it, 100% eliminated from that point. Some of, I mean, Castellanos is about to opt out and he looked like he was playing still at 110%. Um, You know, making that catch at the wall where, most guys will probably turn, make a business decision, take it off the wall because it does not matter anymore. Um, a lot of things can go wrong when that, um, especially when you're going full speed, looking at the ball, trying to time that jump at the wall. And I think that just says a lot about who he is as a player and how he was as a leader. And even Jonathan India said it kind of midway, early part of the year, like, Nick's one of those guys that they just look up to. Um, when he talks, everybody shuts up. So it's going to be tough to see. So, you know, tough to see his decision in the upcoming days or upcoming weeks, perhaps, uh, maybe even months. But let's hope it goes our way. Um, so looking at this playoff bracket, are you – are you surprised by any of these teams, really? You know, not necessarily. Um, I, I feel like, you know, you you sort of brought it up before we started. Um, you know, if you told me, you know, at the beginning of the year, if you told me, you know, Tampa Bay's going to win the AL East, um, Boston and New York are going to be in that those wild card spots. Uh, White Sox win the ALC, win uh, the AL Central. Houston wins the West. Um, you know, and, and then the rest of that NL field that that just sort of looks like what what you would expect. Um, you know, obviously, as you said, you we would have loved the Reds to be in that conversation, um, but that didn't really turn out that way, but at the end of the day, it's really not all that surprising. Um, it, other than really the giants uh, being in that one seed um, that, that really is the biggest surprise out of all of them. But, you know, you, you sort of expected LA to be in that one seed or, you know, even the Padres. Um, but 
you know, down the stretch, the Padres had, you know, just like we had it rough, they had it rough too. So, um, really, other than that, they, this is what was to be expected at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I think the AL um, side of it, I just think that could have been scripted by a hundred out of a hundred people. Um, Tampa Bay, Boston, New York, all from the AL East. Um, Some people had some faith in Toronto going down the stretch, but again, when you've got, when Boston's playing Baltimore and Toronto is, I believe they were playing New York down the stretch as well. So again, you, you're, you put yourself in a spot where you have to win those games instead of you have to do just 500 or just average baseball. You're, you're really putting yourself in such a tough spot down the stretch where you cannot mess up. Um, and we kind of saw it with, we were talking about this. Um, you brought it up that, in that last game against Washington, Boston had to use Chris Sale because they had to win to get in. And that could very, very, very much affect how this wild card game is played. Um, you know, let's say they they play tomorrow, correct? Yeah, yes. tomorrow, the fifth. And there's he threw 62 pitches. So there is a, I would say a maybe to good chance. I would say around a 40 to 50% chance. Sale might not even get in that game, depending on how Evaldi is. Um, I would assume Evaldi's the starter. Um, yes. At least he's listed, but with that bullpen, I'm just not sure if, especially after 62, I'm not sure if Sale coming off Tommy John, coming off injury, just sitting a long, long time. I'm not sure if he gets into that game. And it really puts you in a bad spot because the Yankees are starting Garrett Cole. So they're throwing their horse out there, and it's going to be, let's just say, tough to scrape across some runs in a must-win game where you have to put up runs. You are going to have to put up runs um, against one of the top pitchers in the league. So uh, I don't want to, you know, get away from the point here, but the AL side super scripted. Um, but the NL side, just like you said, I think San Francisco. There was not one person that had San Francisco in the playoffs, let alone the one seed in the West. Uh, San Diego. And in the Dodgers, there wasn't one person that that thought San Francisco would be the the one seed there. But um, honestly, with with the addition of Chris Bryant there, and he can move all around the field, he can play first, he can play third, he can play left, he can play center, and I'm sure he can play right as well. So you can play first and third and all of the outfield. I think that opens up a lot of options for them um, because he's 
better than average defensively, and he's, of course, a great hitter. So it's going to really open up some options there with some matchups. Um, but, again, um, they're going to they're gonna have to face the Dodgers. Um, you know, with Scherzer on the mound in that NL wildcard game against St. Louis, I just don't see how anybody beats Scherzer right now. I don't care if you threw nine Hall of Famers out there. I'm not sure if anybody touches him. Um, so you're talking if LA wins that wild card game, talking LA, San Francisco, Milwaukee faces Atlanta. Um, like you said, Jocks kind of stepped up, but an accumulus Braves facing Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta. I'm just, and that pitching staff in general, uh, Devin, Devin Williams, bonehead, boneheaded move, um, punching the wall, breaking his hand in the celebration. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know what else to say about that. That's like, he's obviously a huge part of that bullpen. Um, huge part. And you're going into the most important games of the season. I just don't see, you know, it happened and he's got to move on, but that's a killer. I mean, I just don't see, because you've got Hater. Boxberger's been okay for them. Um, he's kind of struggled a little bit lately down the stretch, but I don't think that's any indication of he's pitched in so many high-pressure situations that. And we saw it when they faced Cincinnati. Um, you bringing him in in that seventh or eighth inning spot with runners on base, runners in scoring position, and less than two outs, they rely on him a lot. Um, to get to Hater, and honestly, as much as I hate to say it, I think if you get to the ninth and you're losing, there it's going to be really hard to string some hits together. Um, and especially, one thing to remember is there's no extra inning rule in the postseason. So even if you throw Hater out there in extras as well, and they have a lead, it's going to be impossible to string together some hits off of him. Um, you know, because it's just devastating when you've got a guy that throws so hard from such a weird angle that it's there's just no way. So I'm going to say L.A. gets out of that San Francisco series, and I'm going to say Milwaukee gets out of that, gets out of that uh, Atlanta series. Um are you thinking San Francisco there? Um, I, I am, honestly. Um, I just feel like um, that lineup one through nine is just it, – it's just a constant attack. And, you know, all year long, uh, that, that has sort of been back and forth between those two. But I, I feel like at the end of the day, um, really – and keep in mind too, Max Muncie was uh, taken out of game 162 because of that wrist injury. 
So how does that affect the Dodgers lineup? Because now they're going to have to put in, you know, possibly pools uh, at first. Um, or maybe someone else off, off the bench. So And uh, Ker- Kershaw's hurt too. Yeah, that, that's um, true. I, you've got some points. Um, hold on, let me think about this. So, if so, if Kershaw, see, I just don't worry about that pitching staff at all. Um, I think I would have, even if Kershaw's hurt, um, if if you take one of them out, you still got a three-headed. Scherzer, Bueller, Urias, where to be honest with you, like the Giants have been getting it done on the mound, but I would rather rely on Scherzer, Bueller, Urias than let's say a Gosman, Logan Webb type deal. Um, and See, that's that's what's kind of tough about it is the lineup's really been giving – just like you said, it's been a back and forth. So to swing one way, I think it's super difficult. Um, I think the series honestly could be a toss-up with Muncie out because Bellinger has been – he's had his lows. Um, but – I just think the star power adding adding Scherzer, I think you you guarantee that wild card game, and if he pitches in Game Four, I, I think, well, even Game Three in that in that series against San Francisco, like I, I just think throwing Scherzer out there is a guaranteed win, um, and then adding Turner, you've got a lineup that's looking like Turner, Pollock. Um, Trey Turner, Pollock, Justin Turner, uh, Corey Seager, you know, Will Smith's in there too. I'm just not, I'm not convinced that. I, I think it easily goes to six games. I, I could easily see that. Um, but I think our our takes are kind of the perfect where everybody's at where. Nobody, nobody really thought San Francisco would be here in the first place, and I think they really have nothing to lose at this point. Um, and they've got dudes playing out of their minds, so it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see how those. I think not only the first game, but I think the first couple games will really, really tell us how that series goes. You know, maybe it's the uh, Cinderella story of you know. Everyone thought the uh, the Giants were not even close to sniffing the playoffs, and now instead of the uh, even year pixie dust, it's the uh, the odd year magic uh, for them this decade. So who knows? Um, but I think yeah, the Dodgers do get out of that uh, wild card, obviously. Um, St. Louis's pitching core is just too weak. Um, and then the Dodgers lineup is just way too stacked. But, you know, you, you brought up some really valid points uh, with the Dodgers in that NLDS, but I, I still feel like San Francisco 
uh, really has just like that. Like you said, they, they're, those guys are just playing out of their minds. Um, so I feel like they end up getting out of the NLDS. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to dispute that because like, if I said that at the beginning of the year, if I said that now, we're among the same, like, okay, but they've proven us wrong. Like they, they've been, they're a hundred win team. So it's hard to really say that. I don't think that they'll compete when they have been all year. Um, and you know, wouldn't it be crazy to see that, to see the team that won the world series from the wild card that beat us in the wild card in 2010, that won in 2012, that won in 2014, the world series win again in 2021. Not only that, keep the same kind of core guys as you still got Posey, still got Brandon belt, still got Brandon Crawford. Like, if Posey can win another title this year, that would blow my mind that he could win three that early in his career, then go on and win the fourth that late. Um, but, you know, I, I really think that's toss-up. And honestly, probably whoever wins that series is probably going to the World Series. Um, I just think... Milwaukee is a good team, but I don't think that their lineup competes with either or. Um, I don't think they score enough runs against either of those pitching staffs to really do anything. You know, Gosman's been great all year. So Gosman can match up with the best of them this year um, specifically, but when you when you've got like – Colton Wong has been great for them. William Adamas has been great for them. But realistically, I just don't see, and especially to me, and I'm really high on the Dodgers um, getting out of that NL, but I just don't see – if Scherzer's an automatic win for me, like I said. Um, you could even cl- kind of classify Urias has been that way. He's won 20 games this year. Um, and maybe you could even throw in Bueller. So, again, those are three games where it's going to be extremely tough to even generate one run. So, against a kind of lacking lineup compared to the others that are in the NL side, it's going to, it's going to be tough for, for Milwaukee or Atlanta, um, but I think Milwaukee. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, really, whoever advances uh... – out of LA and uh, San Francisco, I don't, I don't think the Brewers really have a chance. I mean, they've got the 20th ranked offense uh, in the regular season. Um, and really that pitching staff is not helped. Like you mentioned with Devin Williams being out. Um, so like I said, that one through nine attack, uh, for the Giants and really the Dodgers, um, that that there's no doubt in my mind, uh, whichever West Coast team makes it out of that NLDS, they're going to the World Series. Yeah. So, um, 
so we're thinking whoever gets out of that NL, um, I think the Rays are just too good. Um, even with that kind of depleted pitching staff, they're like, they just match up with teams too well. Um, they're built around depth. So whatever you kind of throw, it, they've always got a move to kind of counter. And matchups have been important for them. Whether anybody agrees with it or not, analytics, that's what the Rays operate on. So, you know, it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see that New York Boston series. But whoever makes it out of that series, you're losing a Tampa Bay. They neither of them have good enough staffs to compete. Offenses have been up and down. Um, you know, there's just no way that either of those teams can compete with somebody that's as consistent over a seven game stretch as the Rays are. Um, that Houston Chicago series now, now I think Tampa Bay is going to win the AL. And personally, I think it's going to be LA Tampa in the world series. But that being said, I really do. I like that, that Houston Chicago matchup. I think it's going to be a really fun series to watch. Um, two offenses that can just put up runs against two pitching staffs that can just blow doors down. So it's going to be really fun to um, kind of see how those teams match up. Uh, Correa in the final year of the contract. Um, I think he's going to have a all out mentality going in. Um, and then, I mean, how can you not like that lineup on the Chicago side? You got Robert, you got Tim Anderson, you got Moncada, you got Abreu. You know, you've got uh, Gavin Sheets that killed the Reds. Um, and then you got Grandall behind the plate. Like, I just don't see how. I think they're sort of like LA, like a mini me version of LA, where they've got guys at every position that you're like, wow, he's pretty good. Wow, he's pretty good. And then before you know it, you're down at the eight spot and you're like, their whole lineup is could be an all-star team. Um, just like the Dodgers could. And it, it's going to be really interesting to see that. I love watching Lance Lynn pitch. Um, I think that's going to be whichever game he throws is going to be awesome. Um, but I, I'm really excited to see that series. But, you know, like I said before, I think Tampa runs the AL. I think Tampa runs the MLB this year. Yeah. Um, Tampa Bay, like you said, best team in the AL. Um, and really, whoever it, – it's really a coin flip. Whoever wins that wild card game, they're not getting past the Rays. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, just one through nine, the Rays will just absolutely decimate you. Um, their pitching staff, even, even without Glasnow, um, has been lights out. Fourth best in the majors this year. Um, so in my mind, uh, like you said, it's sort of a preference thing. I don't, I don't like the Yankees winning period. Um, so, you know, hopefully Boston wins that wild card. Um, and then, you know, 
Tampa Bay moves on. And, and then, like you mentioned, that, that White Sox-Astros series is really an interesting one to me. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to forget or sometimes hard to remember, for me at least, how good of a pitching staff that White Sox team has. Um, and they're getting back Rodon uh, for the playoffs too. So it's going to be Julio, Rodon, Lance Lynn. Um, you've got Liam Hendricks in the back of that bullpen. Um, and that line, and the lineups for both of those teams is just, like you said, they're, it, it's like an all-star team. So, you know, I, I hope the White Sox win that series because I hate the Astros. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think, yeah, Tampa Bay, there's no doubt in my mind their world series bound. Yeah. And it's hard to like, and I think what's, I think what we both like about Tampa Bay is that it's hard to find a weakness. They're, they're not bad at anything. They're not, I would, I wouldn't go as far as saying they have the best offense, or I wouldn't go as far as saying they have the best pitching staff. But to to be consistently top ten in both in all major statistical categories, it, it's going to be really tough to to put games together against them where you score six seven runs because that that's what you're going to have to do, and especially against the Brewers, like with Devin Williams being out, um, or not against the Brewers, um, the Good Lord, the Yankees or the Red Sox with uh, Sale throwing in that last game. And then that New York bullpen has been shaky all year long. There's not been one guy that's kind of stepped up in that role. Uh, Wandy Peralta, former Red, of course, is throwing well as of late, but you're not relying on Wandy Peralta throw you through a postseason um and garrett cole cannot do it all he cannot pitch in every game um nestor cortez has been throwing well for them but again i i just don't see you've got nestor cortez really feasts on matchups and really feasts on uh locating getting ground balls you know doing all that tampa bay just matches up with anybody. So to me, you're going to need a Garrett Cole. You're going to need a Max Scherzer. You're going to need somebody who really like is a powerhouse pitcher to shut that offense down and give your offense really a chance. Um, but yeah, I think Tampa Bay, it's, it's hard to hard to find something that they're not good at. And while Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe they do strike out a lot, but on that same token, they score a lot of runs. So if that comes with that territory that we mentioned before and why, at least me and you, where we really value Tatis over somebody like a Javi Baez because while Javi Baez 
um, and Fernando Tatis both make a lot of errors. They both will strike out a lot. Tatis is going to hit you 40 home runs where Baez in, in a career year is going to hit you 30. Um, and he, not to mention Baez will probably hit around 250 if he's lucky. So, you know, you, you really value um, how when you're kind of weaker at the strikeout range, how they just put a lot of runs on the board. So it, it's, again, it's going to be super tough to beat them. But on to the Reds, um, you know, obviously eliminated at this point. But going into the offseason, I think we're both under the impression, and I think most people are under the impression that your main concern has to be out in right field, has to be re-signing Nick Castellanos, and it has to be opening the checkbook, signing the name down at the bottom, writing Nick Castellanos on the memo, and letting him fill out any number he likes. Um, Because at least for me, I'm under the impression that if Nick Castellanos does not re-sign with the Reds, we will not compete no matter what. Um, you know, you've got, if he doesn't re-sign, who we've got out and right? Aquino? That's a huge difference. Huge difference. And not to say that we couldn't sign anyone in free agency or trade for anyone during the offseason, but you know, you're, you're really relying on, 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 on the budget and on the pocketbook. Um, and which is very not surprising, but sucks at the same time. Uh, you sent me a quote the other day where Nick crawl was quoted as saying that going into the off season, their main concern, their first main concern going into the off season is making sure the budget is right. If that is our main concern every single year, we will continue to finish just like this every single year, just outside the playoffs, but just good enough to where it keeps it interesting. And it it really sucks that I feel like we're one or two, um, probably more two, a, a really good bullpen arm, and maybe a half-decent shortstop to really roll through and make that make that next step, may, win the Central, you know, um, and go into the postseason with confidence, really. Um, you know, I don't think Suarez is going to have a shit season like he did this year, but who knows? Um, he's really heated up um, down the stretch, but this is a different discussion and uh, we can kind of split it into two, but I really do think that there was so much pressure that was on uh, Eugenio Suarez from the beginning where he was kind of our saving grace at shortstop at the beginning of the year, and there was so much pressure to perform where there was no one else. Um, Now, Kyle Farmer stepped up and stepped up big, but from the beginning, 
it was all Suarez, all Suarez, all Suarez. And it was all, how is he going to do it short? How is he going to do it short? And to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm unhappy with the season that was he produced, but I'm also not, I'm not throwing out the player. And it, it sort of, for me, it would be like, um, I compare it to sort of a Jay Bruce, where if Jay Bruce had a down year, um, sort of to this standard, I don't think you throw out that sort of player. And that's been a mainstay in your lineup for so long. And it's really difficult for me to kind of move on from that. If he can, if he sh- comes out next year and shows that he's still consistently bad like he was this year, then I think we can have that discussion. But I think now I just I'm not comfortable with completely moving on from Suarez after one bad year. Right. Just think about it this way. He he just got a head start on his uh NL comeback player of the year award. So uh you know it, it's it's not too late for him to uh to sort of turn it around. Um I, I mean yeah like you said there was a lot of pressure that was put on him uh, at the beginning of this year. He did come into camp a lot lighter uh, from the pounds sort of perspective. Um, And I I think that's just because he was sort of expecting uh, that shortstop role. But at the same time, you know, he hadn't played shortstop since – 2014 2015 maybe so you know having to go from you know playing third learning third base uh over since you know the todd frazier trade and then you know you you start and you're that everyday third baseman uh ever since then and then you have to go back to learning shortstop all over again. He compared it to riding a bike uh, at the beginning of the year. It's anything. It was anything but that for him. And that sort of pressure, I feel like, carried over from the fielding side to the plate sort side of things. You know, he put a really high expectation on himself of I'm going to hit 50 home runs this year. And then, you know, add that to the fact that, you know, he was the, the, the shortstop role was basically thrust upon him because we didn't want to pay the money for a shortstop. You know, that really sort of compounded things and just made that load even bigger for him. Um, and then, you know, Jose Barrero not quite being ready sort of, you know, made that burden even more for him. And, you know, moving on to the fact of Castellanos, really, this is how baseball is played these days. You have to open up the checkbook at some point. You can't have this penny-pinching, money ball sort of perspective anymore 
of, okay, we're just going to go out and get guys off, off the waiver wire and build a team that way and just hope for the best. That can't happen. It, if you don't have the capital to open up the, to open up the checkbook for someone of Nick Cassianos' caliber, you shouldn't be owning a baseball team, period. Let's face it. I mean, yeah, Joey Votto's contract, he's earning a lot of money. But realistically, if you don't have the room for his contract and then signing free agents around him to make that team better, then what are we doing? You know, what what are we trying to accomplish here? Um so like you said, th- this team is built around Nick Castellanos. It, it, I mean, it, it's obviously Joey Votto's there, but it is built around Nick Castellanos right now. He is that key piece, that core leader of the Reds right now. And if we, if we can't re-sign him, then I'm sorry, then Joey Votto doesn't get his ring, you know? It, there's no way around it, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it's going to be really tough to kind of have that case where Nick Castellanos is not on our baseball team. We go through with the same lineup without Castellanos and expect to be in the same position going down the stretch where you're in a spot to compete for a playoff spot. There's just no way it happens. You're, you're going to have to have another career year from Votto. Suarez is going to have to fill that role. Barrero is going to have to come in and perform the shit out of that shortstop role. Winker's going to have to stay in that MVP role. You're just expecting so much from everybody else where Nick Castellanos is, proven, is a proven hitter. He's a proven Game one through game 162, unless his limbs are falling off his body, you are writing him in in the third spot in your lineup and writing him in with that number nine next to it out in right field. And he's been that type of guy where it basically took a hand fracture to take him out of the lineup. And there's just no way that you compete without him. If, if Nick Castellanos, this is something that we kind of discussed before, but if Nick Castellanos does not resign and he opts out and goes and gets paid um, probably near double what he's getting paid now, which um, I, I think prefacing it like this, I wouldn't blame him. I wouldn't blame him one single bit. Um, 30 around there million dollars is a shit ton of money. And to turn that down from a person and family perspective would be crazy. Um, And I don't blame him for that. But let's just say if that happens where he doesn't resign, you are going to have to put up the money somewhere else um, for a Simeon, for a Correa, for a Seeger, for a story. Um, you just can't you can't take 300 average 30 something home runs 100 RBIs out of the lineup 
and expect it to be the same putting in Aquino who has that raw kind of raw power. But as soon as teams kind of figured out how to work around him, instead of going right at him with fastballs all the time, he's looked less than stellar. Let's put it like that compared to a Nick Castellanos. And, you know, I wouldn't, if I'm, if I'm Castellini and I'm Nick Kroll, I think you have to look at this sort of, if, if you're looking at this from a budget standpoint, if we're keeping the same team like now, um, Honestly, you're. I'm kind of capping it at thirty. I would put up thirty million dollars. If if you have thirty million dollars, I'm putting up thirty million dollars. Now, that's under the preface of me thinking that we are actually trying to compete. Um, that we are actually trying to win a championship. That we are trying to put the best players on the field. Um. Now, that could be a lot different in those closed-door meetings where, where Nick Kroll could possibly, could possibly be told that you are going to have to penny-pinch just like last year. We are letting Castellanos go, and you're going to have to find replacements on the kind of lower lower end of six, $7 million. Um, he did that this year with Naquin. That was a huge pickup um, on a minor league deal. But again, just like you said, it's for them to come out and say that they want to bring a championship to Cincinnati. Nick Castellanos has to be a part of it. He's just too good not to be. And to me, if he doesn't resign and we don't do anything about it from a contractual standpoint, it's going to be very tough to believe in Castellini and Kroll. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't blame Kroll from that standpoint. And I don't know if I would even say blame, but I just think you have to move on from Castellini at that point. Like he's got to sell um, because you're not, you're not fulfilling that side of I'm putting the best players out there to win. You are trying to make the most money and there is a happy medium. If you spend on the forefront, I mean, look, look at the Dodgers every year, every year, it seems like they sign somebody to a big overpaid contract and they trade for guys that have monster contracts. And then they always make it back because they're always in the postseason. So what? I don't know what's holding it back to not just do whatever you can to at least do something. Um, Nate, Nate Quinn's a very good discussion as well where I don't think we bring back Naquin. Um, he's going to expect 
a, a hell of a lot more than what he got this year. So if you if you're not if you're not showing out for Castellanos, we better not fucking show out for Naquin because I'm gonna be pissed. Right, you know, Naquin's sort of that guy who you know you bring in for one year, he does a job, and then you just sort of just cut him loose because he's gonna want more than what he's worth. Really, no offense, but you know he's you know with the year he had, he's probably gonna want something like maybe. Five million, seven million, who knows? And you know, I don't think he's worth that much. So, you know, you gotta move on from him. And you know, this is this is even a discussion that could be had with you know Kyle Farmer. Um, you know, because maybe you bring him back for depth, but do you really expect him to, you know, perform at the same level? as he did this year. Um, and then, you know, the, the shortstop question is Jose Barrero. Do you believe Jose Barrero is ready for the starting role at shortstop? Because he hasn't really shown that he's ready, at least at the plate, in my opinion. So, you know, if you're going, if you are in that mindset of competing this year, or next year, pardon me, do you open the checkbook for a shortstop? You know, there, there's so many possibilities here, but there's just so little with the budget, with that sort, with that sort of penny-pinching aspect of it. So, you know, what are we really expecting for next year is – the question, I, I, I really don't know, to be honest. You know, I'd, I'd like, I'd love to compete, but, you know, Mr. Castellini thinks that, you know, <laughs> making more money than what he's spending is a little more important. So, you know, how do we curb our expectations? And I, I just don't really know what the answer to that is yeah and so i think you hit the nail on the head like if if we don't open up and kind of show out money wise and add somebody um you you really have to you really have to temper your expectations for that upcoming year um because whatever lineup you have at the first five including an india including a Winker, including a Suarez, including a Vado, among those lines, that six, seven, eight is just not going to compete because you're going to have to play Kyle Farmer. Um, you're going to have to play Aquino. Like, you're going to have to play Shogo on a regular basis. And it's just not what a postseason team looks like. Shogo is very good at doing a, a at fulfilling a specific role, which is kind of in that seventh, eighth, ninth inning in a close game, taking out a Tyler Naquin for a defensive, like taking out an offensive mind for a defensive kind of uh, 
above average defender out in center. Um, he's not what you want from an everyday center fielder. And, you know, when you're, you're looking at this free agent class, I think it's really important to really key in on shortstops because like we said before, if you're not, if you're not re-signing Castellanos, Castellanos opts out, signs elsewhere. Um, you, you really have to key in somewhere else. And I think shortstop is where you could possibly key in. Um, you've really got six options, five really, but let's just say six. You've got Simeon, Story, Seeger, Correa, Baez, Simmons. Why I say five is there ain't no way in God's green earth Javi Baez is coming to Cincinnati. No way. So whether you want him or not, I do not um, personally, but he's a, he's not coming. Um, now, this is crazy to me. Um, we kind of talked about this before, but it there is this website, uh, Spot Track, and it lists the top five um, free agents at the shortstop position and lists their expected market value. If I told you that Javi Baez is expected to make more money than Marcus Simeon and around the same money within a million of Carlos Correa. Whoever pays that man $24.5 million is going to be down the shitter for the next, uh, I don't know, however long the contract is. Because even like we saw with the Mets, he's just not, <laughs> not what they needed. Tell you that much. They needed somebody who was consistent. And Javi Baez is the opposite of consistent. So while he does hit a lot of home runs and make a lot of hard contact when he puts the bat on the ball, more often than not, he's walking back to the dugout with three strikes on the board. So it, it comes with the territory of being that free swinger that he is. But again, I'm just not I'm I'm not sure who needs somebody like that. You're you're not for me, he's the home runner strikeout um kind of player. And to me, there's just too many teams that need consistency. So to pay twenty four million dollars for no consistency whatsoever is just infathomable to me. Um, so realistically, you have for the for the Reds, um, Simeon, Story, Seager, Correa, and Antrelton Simmons. Like we we were talking about this before, there's a huge drop off after that. Um, the next next let's say highest rated shortstop after that is Freddie Galvis also former red um but again it's just not what you need so really there's five 
realistically, I'm going to take Corey Seager out. It says his expected market value is just over $30 million. I think he breaks that. Um, you saw Tatis money. He's not Tatis, but again, you, you take Seager out of that L.A. lineup, it looks a whole lot different. Um, and I, I think they signed him for close to 32. So take that out. If we're not going to spend $20 million on Nick Castellanos, there ain't no fucking way in hell we're spending 32, 30 on Corey Seager. Um, to me personally, I'm taking out Angleton Simmons. I don't think he gives you that offensive consistency that we need. And again, I think you take out Correa as well. Um, I think he's going to really push push the salary as much as he can. You don't leave Houston to, and maybe it's to get away from that stigma but in Houston. But again, I don't think you leave a title contender for like $20 million, like around the same pay that you were getting paid. Um, you, you're leaving for $30 million. So take him out. So really you've got, to me, Story and Simeon. Um, if you want to go big or go home, Story's going to want a shit ton of money. Um, Simeon is coming off a one-year deal where he overperformed. So to me, this is this website. I don't think it's really accurate when it comes to specifically Marcus Simeon, where he signed a one-year, eighteen million dollars salary um, for the year twenty twenty-one. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that he hit. Let's see. He hit 42 home runs, I believe. 45. He hit 45 home runs. And along with that, hit 265. So to say 20, I'm just, I'm not buying 20 at all. Um, I think he gets paid more 25 because he is not the big name like a Trevor Story or a Correa or a Seager, but if Nick Castellanos leaves, I think Marcus Simeon would be perfect to maybe on a one or two year deal slide in and see what happens because he's produced the last couple years, his last year with Oakland and this year in Toronto. Um, Trevor Story's been kind of struggling. Uh, struggling in quotations down the stretch, but he's been in Colorado surrounded by a god-awful team. So that definitely plays a part into it. Um, but really, I, I really like the Simeon on a – I believe he can be among the caliber of a story in Cincinnati, but my Lord, I – couldn't imagine Trevor Story hitting in Great American. Yeah, I mean, you just you just hope and pray really that you'd re-sign Castellanos. But I think to your point, yeah, Semyon's really the next best thing because 
you know, really story to me, at least he, yeah, he was brought down by that Colorado lineup, but there's also the cores effect to take into account as well. Um, just sort of, uh, especially when we were talking about him at the trade deadline, his home and away stats really were vastly different. And um, I, I just feel like, you know, when he moves out there, you're going to get a whole different player. Um, but, you know, like you said, I think Semyon's the next best thing. Uh, he's been hitting the cover off the ball this year. Like you said, 45 home runs. Um, so you hope and pray that you re-sign Castellanos, but, you know, to open up the checkbook, no matter what, you got to sign someone. Um, so it, it might as well be Castellanos, really. Yeah, I mean, and especially with, I don't know if you saw this, but he had that post-game interview where he said he it was the most fun he's had playing baseball and the most like consistently fun season that he's had. And it would just be a shame to see somebody of that caliber and have the team that we had um, barring injury, not be on the field next year. Um, you know, it, it's, it just sucks that this is even a question because really I think for any team that is in our position to compete, this is a no brainer. Right. And there's something to be said too about, I was watching MLB network the other night and Harold Reynolds was on and he was talking about how important it is building a winning culture and attracting free agents to come to your team and play for your city. And when, you know, over these past three years, I feel like we have made strides, very big strides from where we were before. But this next year, we need to make a big leap and really show what we're made of, what Cincinnati baseball is all about. And we can't do that without opening up the pocketbook. So, you know, you got to attract free agents somehow. Um, you know, some, some guys will even play for a discount to come over and win. So in order to, you know, attract more guys to come over, you got to open up the pocketbook and, play, and pay for some good players. Nick Castellano should be at the top of that list. You know, he has proven that he is more than capable of leading this team in multiple facets. Like you said earlier, there's that, you know, clubhouse voice, you know, type of facet. There's that on the field type of facet, his, his heart, his hustle, you know, his stats, so what are we waiting for, really, is my question. Yeah, um, it's 
really hit the nail on the head. Um, we, when you brought that up to me, um, I believe he had mentioned St. Louis as that kind of comparable where St. Louis is not like a premier city in the United States. Like when you talk about like LA, New York, Miami, um, like just premier, like fun cities, cities that everybody talks about. St. Louis is not one of those cities, but I think it speaks volumes that in the last couple of years, you've had guys like a um, Arenado caliber, Goldschmidt caliber, want to come to St. Louis. And let's not forget as well, when everybody was talking at the trade deadline about Scherzer, Scherzer grew up in St. Louis. um, And there was a lot of talks about how bad Scherzer wanted to pitch for St. Louis. Um, Now, obviously it turned to LA, which at the time, thank God for us, but it's just, it's unbelievable to me that the difference between, because I don't see many differences between our team right now and a St. Louis. You know, you've got a, an okay staff. Um, your bullpen is probably uh, less than average. Let's put it like that. But you've got guys, you've got position players that are, that the names just jump off the page. And um, like, for example, like I think, like a, a Paul Goldschmidt could compare to a Joey Votto this year. Um, an Arenado and a um, Castellanos could compare. Um, like a um, a Tyler O'Neill and a Jonathan India. Like our lineups are very, very, very similar. So it, again, it's that next step. You just, it, I really do believe you're two, maybe three pieces away from that next step where you're really not only being talked about, but you really come through and show up in the season where you take that next step and in the postseason, come postseason time, you're actual contenders. Um, I'm just not when we're looking at at payroll though. So this is in millions of dollars in 2019. Um, this is the year that Castellanos and Mustakas signed. So this is right after we spent all that money. Cincinnati had $128 million in payroll for the team. St. Louis had $174 million. Imagine if we spent up just... Now, this is not a small number to most people, but in the grand scheme of things for um, Major League Baseball, this is kind of a, a smaller number. If you spin up another 20 and you really got one more big fish, one or even two or three more really solid relievers or among those lines, then at the deadline, you wouldn't have to trade for Sessa and Wilson and Givens. 
you could trade for a big fish like Trevor Story. Now, granted, the Rockies wanted about half the organization, but um, you you could really focus on other things because I, I feel like we were um, we were like the bullpen needed to be taken care of immediately, but it overtook what the problems really were in our lineup. And it, it really derailed from getting a big name. Um, and I'm just, it's a hindsight is always 2020. Um, I can come up with so many what ifs, but to me spending up, just like you said, you've got to open up just a little bit more. And when, when you're in the, the bottom two thirds of the league and spending or near it very, very close to near it, you, you can't expect to compete because other teams will just buy out that they'll just buy out. And it's the same thing with the Dodgers. Like they'll just trade for a Trey Turner and a Max Scherzer at the deadline. And then you just can't compete with that. You've got to have, you, you've got to open up a little bit more. Um, but looking f- uh, kind of back on the positives from this year. So I think it'd be really helpful and really uh, <laughs> good for the spirits to kind of look at um, a little bit of team awards for this year. What we think um, the offensive MVP, the Cy Young, uh, a rookie of the year should be obvious, but rookie of the year. And two that I think would be really good to add are um, biggest surprise and biggest disappointments from this year. Um, kind of looking back at what we hope for next year and what we expect to kind of pick up. So, might be obvious, might not be. I think there are several contenders for this spot. Um, at least a couple, maybe, probably a couple. But who is your offensive MVP for this year? Castellanos. And, you know, I'd, Winker had put up a very good year, um, especially in that first half. Uh, Votto put up a very impressive second half. Like, where the hell did that come from? But, you know, I really, to me, if you want to put, you know, value to a team in perspective, it's a guy who produces consistently all year long. And that was Cassianos for this team. Um. 309 average, 100 RBI, 34 home runs, 939 OPS, 136 OPS plus, 3.3 WAR. What 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 else would you could you ask out of your franchise really co- cornerstone for this year? Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. It has to be Cassianos. If if he doesn't miss that time, I think 
he hits close to 40, um, 40 home runs, close to 120 RBIs. Um, to put it into perspective, he only played 138 games. Adding another 20 onto that per se, where he's not playing all 162, but damn near close to it. I just think you're you're really you're rocking with a lot more, and I think he has to be in the MVP conversation after that. I think he already is, but I really do think missing time hurt his case. Um, but specifically for this Reds team, I think you hit the nail on the head. Consistency is key. Up and down. Um, when you're hot, you're hot, but. Me personally, the lows don't really outweigh the hills. The valleys don't outweigh the hills. Um, And you've really got to be more of a uh, flat line. And I think it it's very telling because a lot of a lot of major leaguers will say um, in interviews and stuff. If you um, if you look at some of the uh, key contributors that have been on winning teams for a long time. It's not how to get to the MLB, but it's how to get and how to stay in the bigs. It's how to stay consistent. Um, and to me, Castellanos has just been not only your best hitter, but your most consistent piece all year. And to me, that's king. It will always be king. And if you can hit a clip of 309 with 34 home runs and 100 RBIs in 140 games, not even, if that's the consistent line, I am, you know, going back, I would pay more than enough to make sure he is a red for next year. Um, But... Moving on to the Cy Young side of things, the pitching side. If if I had to guess, I would say that you're probably looking at two contenders for this. Um, who are you looking at? For me, it's Wade Milan. No doubt. They have no hit man. Um, you know, this is – for me, this completely came out of left field. I know you've stated multiple times that for you, this came out, this came out of left field, but um, this came out of the parking lot, <laughs> but yeah, um, just a phenomenal year. You couldn't ask for anything else. Um, 3.37 ERA, um, six war. I mean, where did this come from? I mean, he just put on a clinic the entire year. And to me, he was really the ace of the starting staff. I mean, there, there's, no, there's nothing else to say about it. He, he was just the guy on this pitching staff. Yeah, and um, so I do agree. I think it's Wade Miley. Um I think it's Wade Miley as well, but if I had to say 
who else is in the consideration. I would also think that um, for a very, I think a long stretch there, Tyler Malley had to be um, one of the best pitchers in the National League. If it hadn't been for that Milwaukee staff, if it hadn't been for, you know, a lot of big, big, big names being talked around, shopped around, having lights out years, Tyler Malley would be in a lot of people's mouths. And, you know, he had 210 strikeouts. And it's very, it's telling to see the amount of, you know, I think where he really grew over the years is um, kind of controlling the walks in a sense. You know, Tyler Malley only had 14 more walks in almost in 17 more innings than Wade Miley. And when you talk about Wade Miley, we're talking about a guy that really locates, picks his spots out. You know, he's, I'm not comparing the two, but he's a Greg Maddox type where he's going to throw you a cut or two seam change up instead of a 95 mile an hour fastball up in the zone. And when we think of the difference between Wade Miley and Tyler Malley, I don't think you're expecting only 14 more walks in 17 more innings. And he struck out almost double what Wade Miley struck out. So I think Malley is in that conversation, but no hitter, you know, really a consistent, consistent piece for us. And I'll say it again. I think consistency is king. If you can go out, give your team five, six innings a game and really, um, really command the ball. I felt like Wade Miley commanded the ball a lot more than, uh, let's say, a Castillo did, especially earlier in the year, where I felt like it almost seemed like every time Castillo went out there, I was more afraid than I was happy to see it. And it seemed like every time Wade Miley was out there, even though I had a differing opinion, a very, very differing opinion at the beginning of the year, he really was our ace of the staff. Um, You know, I really did not expect it. Let's put it like that. Um, But a good did not expect. Like like I told you, I'd, I'd rather be wrong about that than right but it's just the way I saw it. So moving on to rookie of the year for this red legs team. I mean, got to be clear, obvious, probably the NL rookie of the year for the whole national league. And you could maybe say it about, um, actually you probably could, you could say it about all of baseball. I mean, it's gotta be Jonathan India. Yeah. And you know, it's not to gloss over Tyler Stevenson's uh, his contributions this year, but you know, overall, Jonathan India, what a year! I mean, to step up in that second base role, um, and really, uh, this is another who would have thought who would have thought that Jonathan India coming out of spring training 
would take that second base starting spot on opening day. Um, you know, 269 average this year, 3.9 war, 21 home runs, 69 runs batted in, and something that's not often talked about, the 12 stolen bases. That real that is something that in modern baseball, you know, that's sort of modern baseball is turning away from the stolen base, but a guy who can steal a base, in my opinion, at least is very vital to a team success. Yeah. Let's uh, also um, the year Joey Votto had was very, very impressive. Jonathan India was one point higher in on-base percentage than Joey Votto this year. He only, he walked only six less times than Votto. It, it really, he doesn't look like a rookie. It's it's very, very calming to me to say, we have our leadoff hitter for the next, God, hopefully his career. And um, I think bearing injury, I think down the road, you're going to be, we're all going to be talking about India being, you know, this $20 million man it constantly talked about in the MVP. If, if you're putting up these numbers on a consistent basis, especially he's only 24, 24 years old doing this. If we're talking about him at 27, 28, 29, the way we are right now, we're going to be looking at one of the, at least in my eyes, all-time great Reds because he's going to be, again, consistency is king. And this is if this is the baseline for India, I'm so excited to see what comes down the, down the road. Um, so biggest surprise for me personally, it's going to have to be Wade Miley. Um, you know, to me, you could say maybe India in there for the surprise, but I think everybody had a good idea of the expectations that that were of India. Um, but to me, it's Wade Miley throwing a no-hitter. It is. That is not something I thought would be coming out of my mouth. And to me, the only reason that I thought the way I did about Wade Miley was because Derek Johnson and this staff is built around high fastball, uh, low off-speed, striking guys out, not inducing a lot of contact, you know, keeping the ball in your hands and your catcher's hands rather than in the seats. So to me, Wade Miley didn't fit that mold, but thank God he proved me wrong. Yeah, you, you certainly can make a case there for Miley. Um, but in my opinion, uh, the biggest surprise for me was Kyle Farmer. Um the way he just solidified his status in July and August as the starting shortstop for this team. I mean, you know, we were hurting for a shortstop. Suarez did not pan out. Uh, Barrera was still in the minors. You know, we were playing Mike Freeman out at shortstop 
that's how bad we were hurting. And he just stepped up and did a job. Um, like, like we said earlier on, um, just really impressive what he did this year uh, in such a tight spot for us. Yeah. Um, you hit the nail on the head. It was in that time where we were kind of trying to find our footing and trying to keep that top spot in the central, trying to stay in the wild card race um, around the all-star break where Kyle Farmer had a month to remember. Um, to me, I think that that month kind of skews the stats a little bit where I th- I think that he was I, – I wish it would have been spread out a little bit more um, where I think that would have helped us a lot. But, again, not to discredit anything because he really, really stepped up when we needed somebody. There wasn't a um, – there wasn't like a, okay, let's try, let's try it out. We already have somebody who can play there, but let's try something new. We needed somebody to step up, and we needed somebody to step up now. And he fulfilled it perfectly, just like you said. So to the last, maybe uh, ending on a a little bit of a sour note here, but um, biggest disappointment. Um, To me, it's kind of obvious who it is and probably to a lot of Reds fans, but um, I think there could have been two contenders for this if Castillo would not have turned his season around in a big, big, major, major way, like lights out way. Um, I believe the Reds on their Twitter posted a statistic. Once the month of June passed, when July hit, Luis Castillo posted a 2.93 ERA from July 1st on. That is unbelievable. And it really, um, it, re- it really credits to the type of pitcher and player that, especially for me, that I want on this team that even though he threw god-awful at the beginning of the year, uh, figured it out, uh, really like made adjustments, turned it around. But um, I think, I think <laughs> Suarez has got to take the cake here. You know, the guy, again, you know, so, mu- so many expectations, but – Ended the season hitting a buck ninety-eight, which, if he did not tear up September, we would be talking about Suarez hitting a buck seventy or a buck sixty. So he had thirty-one home runs and seventy-nine RBIs, but again, where I think we're saying the same thing about Baez, where if He's going to um, strike out as much as he does. He, he just got to cut down on the strikeouts. 171 strikeouts, that just can't happen. Um, you know, Jonathan India, a rookie, had 30 less strikeouts, but had, if my math is correct, almost 60 more plate appearances. Um, you know, that just it just can't happen. 
can't strike out 171 times, cannot hit below 200. We need Suarez back next year and back in a big way. Right, and and kind of uh, kind of against your point there about the strikeouts. You know, he did strike out 189 times in 2019, but he did have those 49 home runs and that 271 average and that 930 OPS. But you know that that's all fine and good when you can put up those numbers. You know, you got you've got to put up those numbers in order for it to be effective. You know, when he's only getting on base at a 286 clip and hitting 198 for the season, you know, there there's not really a there there's not really a counterbalance there. Even though he did hit 31 home runs this year, it's kind of odd to think about, really. Like. His slugging percentage is 428, which really brought up his OPS. Um, but, you know, just – he just looks so lost at the plate this year. It, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, especially because of how, you know, big of a presence in the clubhouse he is uh, for that team. Um, but – you know, you, you love for him to sort of get on that groove earlier in the season, especially after uh, those shortstop expectations were just sort of tossed out the window about a month into the season. But, you know, you partially can't really blame him, but, you know, you wish those, those numbers would have been a lot higher. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the point where – when we're talking about like Tatis and even just looking at these Suarez numbers, he can strike out 189 times in a season. If he does that and he posts 49 home runs, 103 RBIs and a 271 batting average at a 930 OPS cool by me, because then that means you are producing in other facets. Um, so just to put it into perspective, like he he's down more than a hundred total bases from 2019, hitting 200 points less in the OPS category. Um, you know, almost a hundred points in batting average. Like Suarez is never going to hit 300 if he's going to hit, you know, like he wanted to 50 home runs, but. Again, 271 would be a lot prettier to look at than 198. Um, and I think, just like you said, pointing at the OPS, like in 2019, it was a 358 OPS. That's more than enough. I'm, I'm completely fine with a 358. Um, but when you go and you're hitting 286, uh, 286 OBP, like, I'm just not I'm not convinced that you can strike out at that clip anymore. You you've gotta gotta do something different, gotta change it up a little bit. We've gotta um figure out something different to where if if we're looking at all the years in Cincinnati where he was like a regular mainstay in the lineup, you're looking at an OBP of three sixty seven, 
366, 358, 312, and then this year, 286. Um, it's just not what you want, anywhere near what you want. Um, and, you know, to me, I think you, you've got to, if not next year, then you've got to at least look. At least look for something. Got to move on. Cannot waste any more Joey Votto years. Cannot waste them. So we would love to know uh, everybody's thoughts. If you want to connect with us on social media, and we'll see you guys in 13.